So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to breathe that free air this morning. Lord God, I want to pray uh, the forgotten beatitude. Jesus said, uh, Jesus, you said, blessed is he that is not offended at me. So this morning, Lord God, as we look at the word, and Jesus, you are the word, I pray that we would not be offended. And Lord Jesus, if we are offended, I pray you just offend the hell out of us till we had no more hell left and we're no longer offended. Blessed is he who is not offended at me. Lord Jesus, help us to believe the gospel because it really is gospel. It's good news. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things, Lord God. Amen. Sometime in October 1981, I made a secret arrangement with a woman named Beverly Coleman to take her daughter Susan out for ice cream. Leaving me alone with Susan's father, Vern Coleman. Vern is now my father-in-law. He's a great father-in-law, but at the time I was absolutely terrified of him. In college, he was a football star nicknamed Killer. And I knew that he seriously could just beat the tar out of me if he wanted to, and I figured he kind of wanted to because I was dating his youngest daughter, had the hots for her. Vern was a rocket scientist at the time. Well, still is a rocket scientist. He, he was working then for Martin Marietta, building stuff for the Cold War. You heard about the Cold War against the Soviets. Stuff that he still can't even talk about to this day. Anyway, Susan and her mom left for ice cream, leaving me and Vern alone in the living room, sitting in the two big lazy boy chairs facing the console TV. We were watching Chips. <laughs> I remember I, I waited for a commercial. I took a deep breath and I said, um, um, Mr. Coleman? Yeah, what is it? Um, um, I, I have a question for you. Yeah, what is it? Um, um, I'd, I'd like to ask for your, um, your daughter's hand in marriage, and, and no kidding, this is the first thing out of his mouth. Well, how much do pastors make? Which, which, was, a, which was a pertinent question, you know. And I was suspect. I mean, because religion can make you do strange things. He said, how much do pastors make? And, and I remember I, I kind of fumbled and thought a few things, and I said, well, um, they do okay. Paused a moment. And then I, I reached behind the lazy boy chair where I had placed a gift. I held it up in the air and I said, perhaps this would persuade you, Mr. Coleman. It was a, it was a metal pail, a, 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 a bucket. He looked at me, he looked at the pail, and he said, what the hell is that? And I said, um, in this bucket are the foreskins of 200 Soviet rocket scientists. Dad, hold out your hands like this. And they, and they reach in the bucket, and I begin to count them. One skin, two skin, three skin, 200 foreskins of Vern's arch nemesis. And then I said, now, can I marry your daughter? <laughs> True story. 
it, that actually that actually happened uh, to me up until the bucket part. But but the <laughs> but the bucket part actually happened not to me but to David, the man after God's own heart. This is a 10th sermon in our series, Jesus Everywhere. And the past few weeks, you know, we've uh, preached about David, Michal, seeds, fruit, the covenant. And, and during that time, I couldn't stop thinking about this a scripture out of 1 Samuel chapter 18. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul is king, but he's jealous of David, who is a young man in his army that's just having incredible uh, victories. Uh, young David has the hots for Saul's daughter, Michal. As you know, David is like a foreshadowing of Christ. In fact, in the prophets, like in Ezekiel, he's even uh, equated with Christ. And check this out. We are Christ's bride. 1 Samuel 18, verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, the, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time. There's a little history behind this. David and Saul. You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And, and Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul, then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. The king's enemies. Or the king's enemies. Anyway, Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number, he must have counted them out, to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law, and Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. So David paid the bride price. You know, in many cultures, um, the, the, the bride pays the groom, or the groom's family, with a dowry. But in scripture, the groom pays the father of the bride with the bride price. And David paid double the bride price, double, and that's interesting because in Exodus 20 in the law, um, it stipulates that stolen property shall be paid back double, and the prophets prophesied that the Messiah, son of David, would pay back double for sin, dishonor, and shame. Well, anyway, David pays double the bride price. The bride price is the circumcision of the king's enemies. Circumcision. Like we talked about last time. I think we modern Christians are so sexually depraved and likewise sexually repressed that we have a really hard time understanding concepts like communion and fruit bearing and seed sowing and certainly circumcision. We think it's a joke. An antiquated cultural anomaly, but, but the Bible takes it seriously. In the Bible, circumcision is not a joke, and yet that doesn't mean that it's not funny or embarrassing. I mean, guys were guys 4,000 years ago, just, just like today. 
So you know, when, when God told Abraham to circumcise himself, forming the covenant or the sign of the covenant, I think it's fascinating that he didn't really even explain why. <laughs> Just said, do it. It's like something God wanted Abraham to feel or to understand with his heart. Uh, 2,000 years before anyone would attempt to explain it with, with their brain. That's why even today, I suspect that comedians and teenage boys understand circumcision even better than most theologians. Maybe sometimes God actually wants you to think with something other than your brain, as long as it's circumcised. Concession, but how do they even come up with the idea? There were a bunch of religious leaders gathered, and one guy was like, All right, how should we honor God? I was like, I feel we don't eat pork. I don't know, I like bacon. <laughs> Anyone got anything else? What if we cut off part of our penis? <laughs> All right, no pork. We'll go, no pork. <laughs> you want that man removed? My wife told me that in the Bible, Abraham circumcised himself. Wow. I can't even get to the bank before it closes. <laughs> Dude, those challenges in the Bible took a leap in difficulty there. You know, it's like, don't eat this apple, build me a boat, cut off part of your penis. <laughs> what if I build you two boats? Abraham even tell his wife, you know? Maybe didn't. He was just getting out of the shower. She was like, what the hell have you done? <laughs> Honey, I can explain. God told me to do it. If God told you to jump off a bridge, if God told you to sacrifice our first... Actually, I have to talk to you about that one. Yeah, Abraham, he went through the ringer. You know? It's not like Jesus had a cakewalk, though. You think Jesus ever trying to talk God out of some of that stuff? You know, like, hey, Dad, you know that old crucifixion thing? Yes, you're dying on the cross for all mankind's sins. Yeah, yeah, hear me out. <laughs> what if instead of that, we did a big fundraiser? <laughs> well, did you notice how his thinking went from circumcision to Isaac to Jesus? You may remember uh, part of that clip from three years ago when we preached on Abraham's circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. That sermon was titled, Couldn't We Just Wear T-Shirts? And you can listen to it online at our website. It'll, it'll help you with this one. But in Genesis 17, God makes the covenant with Abraham and his seed. Paul goes out of the way to point out that seed is singular and seed is a reference to Christ. So circumcision is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son that gets inscribed in Abraham's flesh. That's amazing. In fact, part of his flesh will be cut away, snip. N namely, the skin covering the most sensitive part of Abraham's body. That part where two become one in the covenant of marriage, bearing fruit. That is life. That part, Adam immediately covered when he took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That part where Abraham felt shame. The shame of not being able to produce the promised blessing. Fruit, the seed. Anyway, they say the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Not according to scripture. 
quickest way to a man's heart is through that thing that Abraham is told to circumcise. You know, the Bible talks about fruit trees being circumcised so that the fruit will no longer be forbidden, but holy. It talks about ears being circumcised so that the people can hear. It talks about lips being circumcised so that Moses can speak. It talks about hearts being circumcised so that God's children can receive love and love in return. But that circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, will not be performed by doctors or by rabbis or by any human hand. Deuteronomy 3, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and that of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. I think that means that one day we will think with a circumcised heart. Well, anyway, in Romans 4, Paul teaches that Abraham's circumcision was a sign of the covenant and a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. In Scripture, the opposite of faith is sin. So, so do you get... The picture here, circumcision cuts away that substance, that skin that keeps a person from communing with God, that keeps a person from experiencing and expressing hased, Hebrew, for faithful covenant love that is God. And, and, and what is that skin? Well, it's flesh. And more specifically, it's sinful flesh. Circumcision is literally a judgment, snip, upon your sinful flesh. Now, in case you're a dude with an uncircumcised basar, that's the Hebrew euphemism for what we're talking about, let me just say your foreskin is not evil. In fact, Paul even commands the Gentiles not to be circumcised. So your foreskin is not evil. However, in the Old Testament, it is a sign and, and symbol of, of evil, a sign of sin in the flesh, that which keeps a heart from the faithful covenant love, hasad, that is God. So circumcision is the sign of the covenant, and circumcision is the bride price. I mean, if you're a dad and some kid is asking for your daughter's hand in the marriage covenant, you want a sign of that covenant, right? Let me see a ring. Let me hear a vow. Let me see some sign of commitment. That's what you want. So circumcision is the bride price given to the father and covering the bride. In the Bible, only the groom is cut, and yet the bride is covered. She is said to be circumcised in the circumcision of her groom. And the point of male circumcision is not decreased pleasure like female circumcision. Nowhere in the Bible does it command anything like female circumcision. The point is not decreased pleasure, but increased pleasure in communion in a covenant bearing the fruit that is life. It's only after 99-year-old Abraham is circumcised that Sarah gives birth to Isaac, which means laughter. Check this out. Isaac is laughter the place of shame, place of pain, but only after paying the bride price. In Genesis 34, this is a, you need to read this scripture if you haven't, okay? 34, Genesis, Shechem uh, rapes Dinah, tragic, which is the sister of the sons of Israel. 
Rape is stolen pleasure. It's self-centered pleasure rather than a communion of pleasure. Well, in Genesis 34, Israel demands the bride price from Shechem. From Shechem and his entire city. And so in Genesis 34, Shechem and his entire city get circumcised. Then in Genesis 34, verse 27, when they were, quote, sore, two of the sons of Israel attack and slay them all. Guess they should have paid the bride price up front. Anyway, circumcision is a bride price. I was present for my son's, my youngest son's circumcision. The lady doctor. I remember as she was performing the circumcision, she began telling me about her recent divorce. And she seemed kind of angry. I remember praying really hard for Coleman because I thought, I, I am worried, Lord, that she's going to overcharge on, on, on the bride price. Well, Coleman's okay. I don't want you worrying about him. But in Scripture, before a groom, you see, before a groom can enter a bride, before Israel can enter the promised land, Joshua chapter 5, before anyone can enter the new Jerusalem in the new creation, there must be a circumcision. So circumcision is the sign of the covenant, possibly even the covenant, depending on how you read it. Circumcision is the covenant. Circumcision is the bride price. And circumcision is your ticket to the new creation. Israelite boys were circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, that uh, is after the seven days of creation. It must represent the finished, the perfected creation. In other words, there are no foreskins in heaven. No one has sinful flesh in heaven. There is no unfaithfulness in heaven separating bride and groom from each other. No foreskins in heaven. And yet, check this out. Fellows in this world are born with them. You ever thought about that? I think that must mean that we are all born with uncircumcised hearts. That's amazing. Was, was Adam born uncircumcised? Of course, what's really illogical about circumcision is if God wanted to look like that, why didn't it look like that at birth? Why don't we pop out of the hatch, no assembly required, or disassembly? <laughs> Here's the theory. Okay, here's my theory. In the Bible, according to the Bible, uh, Adam and Eve were the last thing God did. He, the last thing he made was man and woman before his day off, the seventh day. So the last thing he did is Friday night at five. <laughs> Nothing good ever happens Friday at five. You're in a rush. You're okay, bring in Eve. Very nice. I like her better with the breasts on the front. That was a good idea. <laughs> That's good. He should have feed the baby. Plus, she can keep an eye on him. Very good work. Good. Where's Adam? Where? Adam! Very nice. I like the useless nipple matching thing. Yuck! Y yuck! That's not right. Who did this? Who, who is responsible for this little pig in a blanket? I said in my image. Did you even look at the photos? <laughs> now we're gonna have to fix it later. See that that comedian, 
he sees something that most religious folks miss. And that's a biblical understanding of original sin. The reality that each of us are born unfinished. The reality that each of us are born with an uncircumcised heart. That is a heart incapable of choosing the good in freedom. A heart incapable of faithful covenant love in freedom. It must have been because of that skin around our hearts that we didn't trust God and took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and tried to make ourselves in God's image, tried to judge ourselves, circumcise ourselves. It's because of our uncircumcised hearts, in other words, that we sin. You see, it's not like once upon a time we were perfected in God's image and then messed up. So God had to send Jesus to suffer and, and, and die. No, no, Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and God subjected creation and us to futility so that we could watch as he made us in his image through Jesus Christ and him crucified in his image, the image of Christ, perfect image of the invisible God. In other words, God consigned all men to disobedience. God created all men with a skin around their heart, all people. Romans eleven thirty two. God consigned all men, all people to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, that he may cut away all our sinful flesh with his mercy and thereby make us in his image the image of love and we love then, why? Because he first loved us. We had to see him love us. Another way of saying all that is that we are literally uh, living and still being created in the sixth day of creation. We even kind of wrote a book on that that you can look at on our online too. But, but I mean, that's, that's uh, true biblically, but also even kind of scientifically, once you understand that we're actually living in the sixth day of creation and and we are not finished until we come to the cross and hear Jesus cry it is finished and enter his rest God's rest the Sabbath day the seventh day another way of saying all that Jesus is the eschatos Adam this is what scripture says he's the firstborn of many brethren the firstborn of all creation he is the first Adam first man to be perfected that is the first man to be born with a circumcised heart. Check this out. We are circumcised in Him. We're His bride. And He paid the bride price. Colossians 2, verse 11, listen closely. In Him, in Christ, also you, or you also, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. If you aren't baptized, we'll baptize you, but you need to be baptized. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, literally through God's powerful work of faith 
who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You get that? Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. What got nailed to the cross? Flesh, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you understand? Jesus paid the bride price by destroying your sinful flesh upon his cross. It's your sinful flesh that makes you an enemy of God and imprisons you in death and gives power to the principalities and powers, the, uh, the evil forces in the heavenly places. Jesus paid the bribe price. And, and, and I hope you, you, you realize now that David really didn't pay the bribe price. It was a foreshadowing. His story was a distant foreshadowing of the son of David who did pay the bribe price. It, it turns out that the Philistines weren't the real enemy of God. David's own flesh was the enemy of God. His own uncircumcised heart, the real enemy of God. So, so David wasn't really circumcised, and Michal wasn't really circumcised. You remember that she refused David's naked dance, right? And had no child uh, to the day of her death. We looked at that last time, or two times ago. The, the woman who received David's seed, remember this, was Bathsheba. Yet only as David's heart was circumcised. I mean, maybe you even remember how it happened. David confessed his sin, uh, and the son of David died bearing that sin to destruction. And then in his place, uh, son of David rose as Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon, prince of peace. Amazing story. But anyway, what I was saying, sin in your flesh is the real enemy of God. So sin is not a problem that you can deal with by killing 200 Philistines. Or having a fundraiser. You can't fix it with your willpower. Because it is your willpower. Your uncircumcised heart. Sinful flesh. That sinful flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that means slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now it fascinates me that when most people look at that verse, they immediately think about the homosexual line. And then they argue, uh, well, homosexual sex is, is not sin because it's, it's not a choice. It's like a, a disposition in the flesh. See, it's like we don't even notice. Paul also listed adultery. And Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, which is the worst place to, to commit it. And we say, well, yeah, lust. I mean, oh gosh, well, come on. That's only, that's only, only natural. Boys will be boys. That's, that's biology. That's just flesh. We don't even notice. Paul also listed the greedy. 
People who break the 10th commandment don't covet. Do you know what that means? It means don't want what's not yours. Hello? This is America. Our economy runs on coveting. I don't even know anybody that doesn't covet. And people will say, well, because that's not sin. I mean, wanting your, your, what, you, what others, that's just survival of the fittest. That's the way people are. It's genetic. We're born that way. It's the way of all flesh. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I have several friends that struggle with homosexuality, and I just want to say this. I think that of all my friends, they may be the closest to the kingdom of God. And that's because they understand sin is a problem. That I can't just make a decision to stop. It's like in my flesh. I need help. Most of my other lustful, covetous, greedy friends, like me, (laughs) they don't even know they have a problem. And so they can't even seek a solution. And for some, even their so-called Christianity is a form of greed. It's coveting the kingdom, not even knowing what the kingdom is, like scribes and Pharisees that seek to steal the kingdom by crucifying the king. King of love. Well, I'm I'm just saying that sin is a problem that can't be fixed with our willpower. Because it is our willpower. It's your uncircumcised heart. You know, Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better for you to cut it off than to be thrown into the valley of Gehenna with it. Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But here's the problem. It's not your right hand that causes you to sin. Jesus goes on to make it clear. It's your heart. So you can't fix sin with minor amputation. Only lethal amputation. You need a new heart, even a a new body. The problem is sin in your flesh. So Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, disarming the principalities and powers. Romans 6.5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned, judged, 
and condemned sin in the flesh. Cut it off. Threw it into the valley of Gehenna. Condemned sin in the flesh. So that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Romans 6.11 again. This is, this is how it continues. So you must consider, you must consider, you must consider yourself dead to sin. Because in reality, you are. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, so that you won't let sin reign in your temple, temporal, mortal, mortal flesh. You know, when a Hebrew man was tempted to sexual sin, he'd look down at his basar, Hebrew euphemism for, for penis. And what would he see? The sign of the covenant. And he'd remember the covenant and he'd think, this, this, this tells me who I am. When you're tempted to sin, look uh, to the sign of the covenant. Re remember the covenant and think, uh, the, the body broken, the blood shed. Well, that tells me who I am. I have been bought, purchased with a price. My flesh destroyed at the cross, and I am a new person. In other words, if you struggle with homosexual sin or lust, drunkenness, slander, pride, covetousness, and greed, like me, your strength is not in condemning yourself. And then just trying harder. Your strength is in the sign of the covenant and the cross of Christ where you see that your sin in the flesh has already been condemned in Christ. So there's no point in condemning yourself with yourself. Your flesh has already been cut away at, at the cross. It is not who you are. Satan wants you to identify with your sin in the flesh. He wants you to think that's who you are. Don't do it. Don't say, I'm a drunk. I'm an adulterer, I'm a liar, I'm a homosexual, I'm a greedy man. I mean, those may all be things that you've done, they all may be things that you still do and must confess, but that's not who you are, because that's not who Jesus is. And he is our life. Satan wants you to think your, your sins are who you really are. So that if you surrender them and your sinful flesh you'll die but you won't die you're already dead imprisoned in a body of sin and death you won't die you'll begin to live like this I release you from the spell <laughs> <laughs> you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> I will draw you, Saruman, as poison is drawn from a wound. <laughs> I go, failed and 
not kill me, you will not kill him. Rohan is mine. Be gone. demons say that kind of stuff. Satan and his demons like Saruman and the Lord of the Rings, they gain their power through our self-centered flesh. Listen closely, flesh doesn't simply mean physicality or meat. It means a body that feels only its own pain, that feels only its own pleasure, a body insensitive to other diverse, different bodies, and so imprisoned in itself, like an, an ear or a heart covered with a thick, unfeeling skin that cannot receive love nor give love. Well, Paul tells us that with the circumcision of Christ, the principalities and powers were disarmed. See, that's because we were circumcised with him and they inhabit our sinful flesh. Satan wants you to believe that you are your sinful flesh, so you'll condemn yourself with yourself, which is just more self, so that you'll feel so ashamed of being a drunk that you'll take another drink, so that you'll feel so embarrassed about your lust, you'll soothe yourself with pornography, so you'll feel so guilty about your greed that you'll go shopping when all the while Jesus is standing there saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. I tell you who you are. I paid the bride price. See, if you're, if you're, you're ashamed of yourself or if you're proud of yourself, you're stuck on yourself. You haven't seen that your, your, yourself has been destroyed and made new by grace. My dad's old friend Ray Steadman used to tell this story that always helps me when I try to think about, God, what, how do I beat this sin? How do I get past it? But he used to tell this story about um, uh, this princess in Europe. I guess, I guess it was a true story. A princess in Europe uh, with a rather large, deformed, and bulbous nose. I mean, it made her look ugly to those around her, and most of all, it made her look ugly to herself. And you know, when people think they're ugly, they usually act ugly, and she certainly did. Well, when she was at the age to marry, her family arranged for plastic surgery. 
The doctor uh, didn't call it this, but in fact, he basically circumcised her nose. I mean, cut away the extra flesh, redid the contours of her nose. When they took the bandages off, everyone gasped in wonder because they realized that she was an absolute beauty. And the doctor took a mirror and he held it up to the face of this young girl and as soon as she looked in the mirror, she began sobbing and weeping and she said, oh, I, kn I knew it would never work, it would never work. The doctor worked with her for six months, six months, until finally she accepted the fact that she was beautiful and that the beauty was a gift. Well, when she trusted that grace, that beauty by grace, she not only was beautiful, but everything that she did was beautiful too. Now I know what you're thinking. Okay, great, great. Nice story, Pastor. But she really had surgery. She really changed. I haven't had surgery. I haven't changed. You see, I'm telling you, you're wrong. The Bible says you're wrong. Actually, you had the surgery 2,000 years ago in space and time. And now in eternity, the real you is beautiful beyond description. In other words, Jesus paid the bride price. He did it. He paid the bride price on the cross, and it's done. It's finished. He absorbed your sin, bore it in his own body, and delivered it into the valley of Gehenna for destruction. Done. Finished. The only question is, how long will it take you to believe? It's finished. Heaven is believing the surgery is finished. Heaven is believing that Christ has paid the bribe price. Heaven is believing that you are saved by grace from the top of your head right down to the tip of your toes. Heaven is resting in the knowledge that you have been created in God's image by Jesus Christ and him crucified. Heaven is faithful love because you know that he first loved you. So you see, the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven really is within you, like Jesus said it was. And the consummated kingdom, the consummated kingdom, is that time and place when and where everyone believes. That is, everyone has a circumcised heart. It's Isaiah, 52 verse 1. In Isaiah, it's Isaiah who prophesies about the Lord's bride, the city of Jerusalem, saying this, that one day the uncircumcised will no longer enter. But Isaiah ends with this incredible line in chapter 6 verse 23. L listen closely. This is how Isaiah ends. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That's in Jerusalem. All flesh in Jerusalem. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies, the corpses of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The, the, the dead bodies, the corpses of the men who have rebelled against me. You do this. Read Isaiah. Read it, read it well, and it will become abundantly clear that the men who have rebelled against God are all men. Isaiah 53, or 50, yeah, it's 53, 12, I think. The Messiah has even 
numbered himself with them, the transgressors, the rebellers. And so the only way that I can make sense out of this incredible, incredible prophetic verse is that one day, that day, the edge of the eternal day, we will all walk out of the new Jerusalem in new and glorified bodies and look down on these old sinful bodies, these old foreskins being destroyed in the valley of Gehenna. Oh, that's good news. You see, I sat with my dad's corpse for like hours after he had died, and I remember just feeling this liberation, like, this isn't him, this is not him, but he's still alive, he's still alive. We will look down upon these old bodies trapped in selfishness and sorrow and sin and shame, this old body that feels only its own pain and only its own pleasure. We will look down on these old foreskins in the valley of Gehenna being destroyed by the worm that does not die and by the fire that is not quenched, which I believe is Jesus Christ himself being destroyed and then we'll look down at these new and glorious bodies bodies that will be filled with what light and life and love the very substance of God we'll look down on these glorious bodies and our astounding beauty and we'll know we will know it's all gift our beauty is gift we witness the surgery accomplished here at the edge of the city on the cross of Jesus the Christ our bridegroom Our Redeemer. We will know it then. And you see, we can even know it now by faith. Job 19.25, from the ashes of despair, Job cries out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh... I shall see God. Well, that's a lot to think about. But I want you to just remember this. You are the bride, and Jesus has paid the bride price. It's finished. And, and I, should, I should tell you, I, I, I really didn't... Um, give Susan's dad a bucket of foreskins. But, but imagine if I had gone on to, to say this. Well, Vern, pastors do okay, but perhaps this would persuade you. Um, Mr. Coleman, your, your daughter is my greatest desire. Not to consume, but to create. Mr. Coleman, I will give everything that I have and I will give everything that I am to your daughter. Mr. Coleman, I am utterly incapable of not loving her, even if she grows ugly and mean and hateful, even if she were to nail me to a cross, stand back and watch me die, while well, I'll absorb her sin into my very flesh and bear it in my own body to destruction. And I'll pay her double for all her pain. Mr. Coleman, I will always forgive her. And I will always redeem her, making her beautiful with the very sacrifice of my love. This is my vow. This is my covenant. This is my promise. And I will pay. Well, as a dad who has um, two daughters, <laughs> if a dude said that to me, 
would be like, well, dang, that's a pretty good bribe price. And you see, that's the price that God the Son has paid God the Father for you. For on the night that we betrayed him, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so he calls his bride to the table, saying, believe it, I have paid the bride price. Breathe the free air, even here. You can do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So he said, blessed is he that is not offended with me. Do you understand why he said that? It's not because he's bad. It's not because he's mean. It's not because he wants to hurt you or beat you. It's because you are the bride. And he's preparing you for the honeymoon. And he doesn't want you to be offended with him. Now the evil one will do all that he can to make you offended with him. Make you ashamed and frightened and terrified, but that's why you need to come to this place and present yourself. If actually he presents himself before you, body broken and blood shed, and this is what he says to you, don't you see, I paid the bride price. How can I show you any more fully, any more completely, that I love you? And so blessed is he that is not offended with me. May that be true of you, and may you breathe the free air, now and forevermore, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey there. I hope the message that you just heard or viewed helped you to believe a little more that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. If that's so, I'd love it if you would consider two things. Number one, ask yourself if there's someone that you know that might benefit from this message and then uh, forward this link onto them. There are several ways that you can do that by visiting our website at thesanctuarydowntown.org. Secondly, I'd love it if you'd uh, take just a moment and uh, ask the Lord if He'd like you to contribute to this endeavor financially. We really can't do this except for the fact that God inspires people like you um, to give. And uh, you can do that by uh, going to the website and clicking on uh, the donate button or uh, by simply mailing a check to the sanctuary downtown at uh, 2215 West 30th Avenue, Denver, Colorado 80211. Uh, thanks for being a part of what we're doing and God bless you.